Good morning and welcome to the show. It's October 7. I'm Raji Sohal in for Mike Smith today. We've got so much to cover. Let's get started with the family doctor shortage because we've talked about it a lot on this station. Almost 1 million British Columbians are without easy access to primary care. Now, the health ministry announced this week on Wednesday the hiring of 54 new family physicians. Good news, right? Well, my next guest may not be so impressed. Dr. Kevin McLeod is an internal medicine specialist at Lionsgate Hospital out in North Van, and he joins us on the line now. Hi, Kevin. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, thank you for joining us. It's great to talk to you again. All right, Kevin, you took to social media to call the ministry's announcement disingenuous. What do you mean by that? Um, I mean, I think, I think first off, I would say, I mean, government is trying, right? This is a very complicated problem and, and they really honestly are trying. So I, I'm not trying to criticize or be mean to government. Sure. They really are trying to do their best. But, you know, when they put out a press release saying there's 54 new family physicians who've signed a contract, it is a bit disingenuous because those aren't 54 new people who've moved to the province or who've necessarily started practice. Those people were either here and changed how they're getting paid. So they've moved from a fee-for-service model into a salary-based model, or they were graduates who were coming out in July anyways. And, and many of them are what we call um, return of service graduates. So some people will come into the system here and go through a residency program. They've done their medical school piece in another country. And the government says, well, we'll give you a spot here to complete your training, but in exchange, you have to you know, work in this location or, or providing this service for a period of two to three years. So a lot of the, the 54 were already going to be forced to sign a contract anyways as part of this return of service. So it, it, it sort of makes it sound like, hey, we're solving something, but not really. And, and when you look at just the, the demographics of, of family physicians, you know, more than 60, per, sorry, more than 23% of family docs are over 60 years old. And, and most tend to retire in their mid-60s. So we have this huge additional wave of family physicians who are going to be leaving or, you know, a lot of them are in their 50 to 60 age range, right? I mean, they're going to look at their work hours and go, I can't keep working 70 hours a week. They're going to be reducing the amount of work that they do. So so 54 really is a drop in the bucket. And I, I'm, I'm I'm a bit disappointed because I think we really need way bolder steps um, to, to solve the problem. It, it seems like we're putting little band-aids on a, a major wound. Okay, we will get into that in a little bit. But you did point out that it was 54 of the potential 174 doctors who accepted that job. Why wasn't a higher percentage accepting the job? Well, so so every... So, so your listeners know, I mean, there's 19 different training programs in British Columbia for family doctors. So yeah. you know, we have a program in North Vancouver, there's a program in Chilliwack, et cetera, right? And, and we graduate 174 family doctors every year, you know, at the end of June or July 1st. Um, now, some of those um, family doctors go on to do something else. They, they take a year of additional training in, say, palliative care or emergency room medicine. So more and more are not choosing traditional family practice anyways. But of that 174 that had the potential to become family doctors, 54 people signed on to to this contract model. Um, so that means a lot of them either chose something else or did something else. And, you know, when you think of that number of 54, well, we probably had 200 people in the year retire and, and you know, many more who 
changed what they were doing for work. You know, they left their their family doctor practice. You know, I was I forget who I was talking to. I was talking to somebody just the other week, and this lovely older lady who's who's in her early eighties with a whole bunch of different medical problems, and she was absolutely in tears in my office. I'm not a family doc. Like I work as a specialist, but you know, she said, well, my family doctor told me I can't see him anymore um, because he's now going to be exclusively doing cosmetics and Botox. So we we have people who are leaving practice. They still are technically on the roster as a family doc, but you know, what does that 81 year old lady do? You know, she can't get her scripts filled. She can't get sort of, traditional access to care, it's a huge problem. So 54 people just seems like such a drop. And there, there are so many other solutions that we could be doing. So I do appreciate you illuminating all of that for us because the announcement was made by the ministry as though this was something to celebrate. Well, and they're not wrong in that, in that you know, it is a positive step that we're giving we're giving new newly minted family doctors options, right? And and you know some of the younger new grads want to work in a different model. Um, I was talking actually to a, a graduate who who accepted this contract and and said, you know, this is actually a really nice way to practice because I'm paid a salary. Um, you know, out of that salary, when you look at that number, they they still have to pay their overhead. That's not like take home pay or anything like that. So they have to pay their secretary and their office rent and you know, speculums and all these things that they need, um, you know, and, but she was saying like, this is great because what I'm doing now as a family doctor, I'm booking patients every 15 to 20 minutes. I take time with patients. That's great. I mean, the quality of care is, is better, but if you're seeing a patient every 20 minutes because you're on a salary model, that's probably the right amount of time to spend with the patient. But if you were in a traditional fee for service model and trying to cover your overhead and you were seeing a patient every eight minutes. Now, I'm not saying that that's the right thing. You know, it's too rushed. But, you know, suddenly you've cut the number of people that you're seeing in an hour and a half, if not more. Well, where do the other 50 plus percent of patients go? You know, it's not like, you know, for every person that we're taking out of overworking and putting them into a more normal amount of work or better quality work for the patient, we're bringing two people on for that one person who is overdoing it we're just taking that one person who was overdoing it and reducing the amount that they're seeing. So the salary model, even though it's 54 people, it may actually provide less total patient care, if that makes sense. And I I know that's a bit complicated to understand, but sure, we want doctors to spend more time with people and not rush, but then you're seeing less people. And, you know, there's only there's only so many docs there to see people, right? It's about so, finding that balance. Uh, some specialists have told me, Kevin, that, you know, fee-for-service contract model, they wouldn't touch family doctor practice. Why is that? Why why is family physician work so challenging? Um, you know, not being a family doc, I can only say what I hear from my colleagues, but yeah. it, it's really hard work, right? I mean, you're you're working extremely long hours. To cover your overhead, you're really rushing people, and that just feels like not good quality of care sometimes. Um, but you think if a family doctor gets $31.50 for seeing you in their office and their office overhead is, you know, easily $100 an hour, you know, they got to pay a nurse, they got to pay their rent and other things. It, it's certainly in the North Shore, it's more like 120 bucks an hour. Well, you've got to see three to four people an hour. So every 15 minutes just to break even. So, you know, then you're really 
forced into seeing at minimum six people an hour, but more like eight people an hour, if not more, to, to be able to make it work. And that's so rushed. Um, you know, it just, it, you feel hectic. And, and even as a specialist, I have these days where, where you know, I just too many people, like there's 45, sure. 50 plus people, but they don't have anywhere else to go. And you, you end the day at like eight at night and you just, you feel that stress. And that isn't worth any amount of money. It's not the money that people are doing this for, but there's sort of this endless supply of need, but not enough people to fill that need. I'm Raji Sohal, in for Mike Smith today. And if you're just joining us now, I'm with Dr. Kevin McLeod, an internal medical specialist at the Lionsgate Hospital in North Vancouver. And we're talking about the family doctor shortage in the province. And we're taking your calls and comments right now. The number to call is 604-280-9898. But first, Kevin, I just wanted to ask you a question to get into this briefly. How long has the family doctor shortage been an issue? Because something like this doesn't happen overnight. Uh, you know, it's a it's a good comment, right? I mean, it's been developing for many many years. Um, I, I you know I think back in like the late '80s, early '90s, there was there was sort of reporting that you know, we sort of had an adequate number. But but think of what's happened to our province, right? I mean, we've gotten older, people have retired, the complexity of medicine has grown dramatically. What we can actually do and solve now. Um, and um, and the population's ballooned, right? I mean, we've we've had a, a ever-growing population in BC, and we haven't really kept up with all of those trends as far as as far as numbers of physicians. Okay, all right. Let's go to the phone lines. Uh, let's say good morning to Karen. Hi, Karen. Good morning, and I follow you on your social media, Dr. McCall. So you're very uh, well liked out there. Uh, I just wanted to say that uh, I've been on the wait list for 12 months for a lump in my throat with a prior history of thyroid cancer. I'm very concerned to the point where I'm now going to be uh, paying out of pocket to get a private MRI at Prunovo, uh, which is a clinic in Vancouver. And I'm just really concerned about the fact that somebody has pre-existing cancer in the past with a complaint where they're having trouble swallowing with a lump. And my family doctor referred me, but the family doctor is one uh, part of the puzzle that's the problem here. But the wait list with specialists is out of control. Yeah, Karen, it's a really good point. I mean, I, I see that every day that the waiting lists have have grown. In fact, so much so that certain tests, I don't even bother ordering anymore, right? I mean, what's the point in ordering a CT scan of somebody's heart that I may really need if they're given an appointment in, you know, December of 2023? It, it just doesn't make sense, right? So, you know, and the, the cancer piece does concern me because, you, you know, you wait longer now as a physician and patient to get to get pathology results because there's not enough pathologists and then you're waiting to get into the cancer agency. And, you know, so that, that delay can actually be really, really significant in, in the outcome. Um, And I see that, right. I mean, I've seen so many examples of patients where they couldn't even access the care because they didn't have a family doc and then their, their diagnosis of cancer was made late and then they had a worse outcome. Um, And some of those people are, are young people. So it's it's really really concerning. Um, I don't think it's really a lack of money in the system. I mean, you spend so many tax dollars on this system, but there's a there's a lack of personnel. And you know, I know this doesn't tie directly to your story, but I was working the BC day long weekend, the, the holiday Monday, and this really really struck me. But I was talking to a group of nurses because they were very short staffed on the medical ward, 
And I said, this is funny. Like, we're never short-staffed on a holiday because, you know, people get paid double time or triple time. And they said, well, you know, everybody was offered triple time, but people didn't want to take it. They're just Wow, out. what's that telling you? Yeah. So if, you, if you're offering somebody, you know, $120 an hour and they're saying no, it's not, money isn't going to fix this. And, and that's where I think government is in a really big bind because you can't just throw dollars at this and, and hope that it's going to get fixed. Um, it's much more complicated than that. We, we also then really need to utilize people that are trained but maybe not credentialed here and get more people working in the system like yesterday, right? So there's so many things we just need to do differently. Yeah, it's a very complicated system. All right, Kevin, we're going to go to another caller. This is Ash in Vancouver. Hello, Ash. Hi there. Hi, Kevin. Um, I own a medical clinic in Vancouver, and what we find out is that this is a complex issue. Number one is that, why is it that in this day and age, SFU and UVIC don't have a proper medical school program, which they train the doctors and bring it to the, uh, to the community? It's, it's a supply and demand. Once, if you have more doctors trained in this province, you essentially solve the issue. The second point that I would like to make is that some of the doctors, and rightly so, they set up a shop, they work for two, three years, they collect bunch X number of the patients, and then they start winding their practice down and they start getting into cosmetics and, 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 and seeing patients that they are covered by MSP. So that is also a, is a factor in this situation. And thirdly, we're bringing doctors from out of country to Canada, and once they arrive here, the College of Physicians tell them that, okay, now your credentials is not good enough. Now you have to do certain things that they could have done while they're waiting to get into Canada by doing online courses and so on and so forth. Yeah. So there should be some sort of reform in a college level to come up with the new ways of bringing these doctors into the, into the clinic and get them to work faster. Thank you so Thank much you. for your call, Ash. Really appreciate that. All right, Kevin, those are some pretty important points. What do you think? Well, I, I mean, Ash makes a really, a really good set of points, right? You know, we, we probably train enough doctors. We could make an argument to increase it somewhat for population. There is a medical school at the University of Victoria and the University of Northern British Columbia that are associated with UBC. Um, you know, so, and, and the government has done a good job in, in increasing and ramping up the number of people we train. But Ash makes a really good point, right? You, you train a family doc, but then they don't practice family medicine. So we, we really then as a society and government have to step back and go, well, why is that? Because it's no good training more people that, like he says, two to three years out don't see patients or they're moving into cosmetics or something else. You know, so don't spend a whole bunch of money training people. Encourage through incentives and sticks and whatever it is, the people that you've already trained to, to practice that full service family medicine. And he's right about the college. You know, we, we have a lot of people here who who can't get credentialed. I've, I've got a, an amazing um, doctor who's trained in Iran and she's really good. She's working in my office right now in what's called an observership because she really wants to um, be able to do residency here and become a practicing family doctor. But it's so complicated for her to do that. There's got to be a better way, right? Like I see this person working in my clinic. I know she will make a very good doctor. She's trained, but she can't actually get licensed to do it. Oh, how and, frustrating. And that, that should not be that complicated. Yeah. 
You're, you're right about that. All right, Kevin, thank you so much for being with us and shedding light on this uh, very complex problem. We really appreciate your time. Anytime. And make sure you have stuffing on, on um, Thanksgiving. <laughs> you heard that chat with Simi. Okay, I'm going to give stuffing a chance this Thanksgiving. Thank you, Kevin. You got it. Bye. Hey there, I'm Raji Sohal, in for Mike Smith today. Shall we talk a little bit of real estate? Here to give us a bit of an overview on what is happening in the real estate market right now is Dane Itell, lead analyst at Itell Insights. Hello, Dane. Good morning, Raji. Thanks for having me on the show. It's great to have you here, but I have to ask you a question quickly that has nothing to do with real estate, and that is around Thanksgiving dishes, because I am taking some heat in the CKNW newsroom for not liking stuffing. So what's your favorite Thanksgiving dish? Well, I was going to say stuffing until you just kind of put the kibosh on that. But uh, no, a good, a good stuffing, you can never go wrong. Really? Okay, so you're a stuffing fan. Okay. All right. So, Dane, we're in a potential recession. Interest rates are crazy high, uh, a move that was intended to cool the market. What is real estate in greater Vancouver looking like right now? Well, the market is definitely correcting. So last month, we were at a 14% correction in the detached market. We saw a bit of a dead cat bounce move here in September. So the market's actually uh, rose up a bit. So we're actually off 9% from the individual market high, which was in uh, April of this year at 2.312 million. The current average sale price is right at uh, 2.1 million. So we're off again 9% in the detached market. The condo market excuse me, is off 11% from its individual peak. And what's interesting about that number, so the peak was in February of 2022 at 846,000. Currently, we're at 750,000, which puts us basically back to where we were during January of 2018 during that market peak and again here in December. So we've retracted in the market uh, average sale prices. The sales are definitely quite low. The inventory seems to be kind of remaining constant, which is giving enough inventory to the market for those specific buyers. Interesting thing that you say about the interest rates rising, that will likely continue because inflation certainly hasn't curtailed or pulled back enough yet. So what we're expecting here over maybe the next month or two in the short-term outlook is some solidification of these average sale prices, just simply because there is going to be a demand born out of the, um, the the rate hold that individual clients potentially have for their purchases. So they're going to purchase properties before that rate hold expires and that they're going to have to qualify at a higher rate. So we're expecting a bit of a increase here, like we've seen basically 100000 over the last month. We'll probably expect that average price to come in around there for the next month or two and then ultimately head lower as we go into 2023. Wow. What a different outlook we're getting now than we've had in just a year. What about housing stock? Is it up or down? Uh, So it's actually flat, which is kind of interesting. So just in May of this year, we had 4,485 active listings in the detached market. This past month, we had 4,416. So, you know, nominal change over the past five months. Similar effect in the condo market. We were at... um, Sorry here, uh, 4,153 in May of this year, and now we're at 4,170. So really no change in the greater Vancouver market. What we're noticing, though, in the Fraser Valley market is that the inventory has decreased a bit, but the prices are way off out in the Fraser Valley. So those, that market really was probably the, you know, the, the great winner here. The average sale prices that were below a million, every market took off. So what I refer to as the tertiary or the secondary markets really took the leg higher during this COVID kind of two-year period. 
Now we're seeing that inverse. And the Fraser Valley market on the average sale price in the detached market is off 26%. And actually, six out of the eight markets are down from this time last year in the Fraser Valley market, um, where we're actually only down in uh, seven markets in the detached Greater Vancouver market have a 25% or greater loss compared to where their individual peaks. So the Fraser Valley is getting hit much harder during this current market downtrend, but the uh, the Greater Vancouver market is not uh, immune to this at all. Okay. Well, prices might be down, but I'm seeing that expensive homes, the really nice homes, they're not really being put on the market right now. Instead, lots of overpriced, what one realtor told me is called an ugly. He said lots of overpriced uglies, or as uh, some call it, the charming tear down. Uh, what's, uh, what are we going to see the nice homes on the market? You know what, that's interesting. Uh, I mean, summer is usually a bit of a lull for the uh, new inventory coming to market. That said, we don't really anticipate a ton to come on here in the winter months. But you, you could expect to see maybe this month and the next month some people trying to come to the market. I totally agree with the analogy that the ugly, quote-unquote, properties aren't selling. So to actually get an achievable sale today, you do have to be realistic. So some buyers are thinking that, you know, there's going to be blood rampant throughout the streets and it's going to be a horrible market downturn. I'm not necessarily in that camp, but of course the sellers still believe that it's, you know, the market's not as bad as the true uh, effect is. So you kind of have two different camps that have completely different beliefs. Ultimately, uh, it will coalesce, and I believe the buyer's side will likely win and that the sellers are going to have to adjust their prices going forward. Coming to market, you do have to be realistic. And if you have a nice property listed within a reasonable price, you still can achieve a sale. But if you're expecting to win the lottery like you have over the last couple of years and receiving, you know, 10 plus multiple offers, those days are gone. Even in the multiple offer scenarios where we have right now, where maybe a property is a bit underlisted coming to market, you're seeing, you know, maximum three to five offers on that property. So interesting. And Dane, we're, we're seeing the higher interest rates. And for people who can't afford to stay in their homes when they renew their mortgages at the new rates, should we see, could we expect to see like a surge then in supply? Absolutely. I would anticipate that to come in uh, early portion of 2023. And throughout the spring market, we will see continued increased inventory numbers, which of course, you know, is a detriment to increasing sale prices. So we're expecting to see some consolidation throughout 2023. Probably the market will correct closer to that 20%. Um, Just on average, since 1980, there's been six market cycles in the aggregate market of Greater Vancouver. The average correction is 22.4%. So we're expecting to see something similar to that. The prescribed uh, market bottom or the anticipated market bottom in the detached market here in Greater Vancouver is right between 14 and 17%. We've already touched that 14% number last month, which is why the market has actually rebounded here quite nicely this month. But again, not expecting that to last more than uh, maybe this quarter. So interesting to hear your take on the crystal ball. Thank you so much, Dane. It's always great to have you on. Thank you, Raji. My pleasure. I'm Raji Sohal, in for Mike Smith today, and later on on the show today, we're going to be bringing you news from a last-minute press conference that's happening uh, that's been called by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Christia Freeland. But first, we're going to talk about a change in policy in the province of Alberta that has people in B.C. taking note. Alberta has announced that it is the first province in Canada that will regulate psychedelics for therapy. Joining us now on the line to talk more about this is Dr. Neil Barclay. He is the regional medical director of Numinous in Vancouver, which combines the practices of administering psychedelic medicine with holistic, integrated psychotherapy. Hello, Neil. 
Good morning. Well, this hello, is hello. this is a very interesting development out of Alberta, and I know researchers are increasingly studying the use of psychedelic drugs like psilocybin or magic mushrooms, as they're commonly known. Uh, but still, a lot of folks uh, deem it to be a dangerous substance. So, are are you surprised that this is happening in Alberta? Well, no, I'm not surprised at all. And uh, you know, we at NUMNS are absolutely thrilled to see this. We are obviously strong believers in the potential for psychedelic medicines when combined with therapy. And we recognize that this step forward, uh, what they've done in Alberta, is, uh, is, is huge. This is going to hopefully uh, allow many, many more people access to these really powerful and, um, in, in many cases, helpful medicines. And where is the policy on these things in BC currently that even allow, for example, uh, Numinous to exist? Well, right now at, at Numinous, we offer psychedelic therapies through the use of the medicine ketamine, um, which is legal and, and can be prescribed by physicians and is, is very safe, like uh, most of the other psychedelic medicines as well. Um, and so we have that ability currently, and we are offering that in our clinics. Through um, Health Canada as well, the special access program, there has been a federal law, which is, is changed this year, which allows us access through a, to psilocybin and MDMA. Uh, therapy for clients, but it is a um, a cumbersome process. That's it's slow and it, it it doesn't allow for access to the many people that need the medicine. And so the framework that they've proposed in Alberta it seems to be a much more uh, reasonable framework, which is going to allow better access to these these important medicines. And is it something that you expect to happen in BC? I do. I I look look forward to it. Um, I think it's it's something that we're going to see um, coming true in in many provinces and, and states. Uh, across North America, the evidence for these medicines is is tremendous. And, you know, you mentioned the, the safety of these medicines. They're actually tremendously safe, especially when you compare them to other other medicines that we use. The, the therapeutic index is, is massive, the, the chance of causing harm from a, you know, medical perspective is, is very low with these when they're used in a uh, suitable setting in conjunction with trained and and skilled therapists like at Numinous. Yeah, so I guess that's the key part there. Dangerous, but uh, safe in certain settings. So let's talk about that. How do the drugs work in a therapy setting? What happens? Well, so for a medicine like like ketamine, which is, as I mentioned, we we currently use, what this allows um, people to do is to access parts of their um, psyche, parts of their mind that they they haven't necessarily been able to access. They can talk about things which are perhaps troubling to them. You know, we use um, ketamine for treatment of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, and a lot of these traumas that people have suffered are very hard to access and hard to talk about. And what the medicines do is that they give um, the ability for those clients to actually access those those thoughts and, and talk about them in, in conjunction with a therapist. There's also biological effects, though, for, for medicines like ketamine. We actually recognize that just giving the medicine um, through a series of treatments will actually decrease people's depression, um, and will also decrease their suicidality in some cases. So there's there's both that biological effect and that psychological effect. And that same holds true for other medicines like psilocybin or, or MDMA, which is also known as ecstasy. I've talked to Dr. Gabor Mate about this. I'm sure you're familiar mm-hmm. with his work. He uh, talks about using drugs in therapy settings. He pointed out to me that the therapy setting, the guiding through it is really important. Why is that? Absolutely. And, and uh, Gabor is a, an advisor to Numinous. And so many of our protocols have been um, shaped by his guidance. And, and we respect the, the work that he's done, obviously. 
Um, but to your question about the therapists, um, you know, uh, we have uh, at Numinous uh, licensed therapists, but we, we train them in um, psychedelic medicine. And, and a lot of that is training them how to prepare clients for their journey. So helping them understand, you know, what the medicine will do for them, but also how does that fit into their um, their current, you know, mental state. Um, and we've known about this for many years, this, this idea of set. And so making sure that um, people are prepared for the medicines. And then when they have the medicines, they can encounter very, you know, challenging, sometimes disturbing thoughts. And so having somebody who's trained to help them deal with that is very important. And then after they finish their medicine, we recognize that something called integration, where they take those insights they may have gained during the um, the medicine session, um, how do they apply them to their lives and how do they actually um, make meaningful change in their lives to, uh, you know, increase the, the value of those medicine sessions. And when you look at the scientific literature, although, you know, ketamine itself is going to have some benefits, when you combine it with therapy, the effects are um, viewed to be more prolonged. And then, you know, a lot of people listening to this, including myself, uh, will not have had experience with these uh, drugs in the past. Just like walk us through what this therapy session even looks like. Is somebody, Mm. um, do they bring a a guide with them, someone to help them that they know personally to help them feel Mm -hmm. safe? Uh, Is there a chance of, quote unquote, losing your mind? (laughs) You know what I'm talking Um, about. I absolutely do. And I think that that's a, that's a concern of many people. But I laugh because, you know, in a controlled setting such as Numinous, you know, I think people in our experience feel very um, comfortable and we prepare them for their journeys and they, they feel like they are well supported. And that's the key to these, these medicines being effective is, is having a great setting where you're going to do them. And so how it works with Numinous for ketamine therapy is you would come to see us, we would match you with a therapist, you would spend at least a couple of sessions talking about the medicine before you even got there. So when you arrived the day of needing the medicine, you really knew what you were in for. You really knew what you to expect and how to deal with the effects of the medicine. You'd arrive at one of our, you know, you'd see a, a physician before this, they would write a prescription for the medicine. So all of these are uh, clients are screened to make sure that there's no problems in their past medical history or psychological history that are actually going to you know, result in them having harm from these medicines. So there's a screening process that occurs even before they, they get to see the therapist. Um, once they come in for the day of the medicine, their um, vital signs are taken or assessed by a nurse. Um, they're settled into a comfortable room and then, you know, a nurse administers, administers the medication, usually in the setting with a therapist being there. Um, you know, our, primarily the way we use thing, uh, the ketamine is, is lozenges or intranasal medicine, but you can also offer it through intramuscular injection. And you know, as the clients sit there in this comfortable room, they start to fear, experience the effects of the ketamine. A lot of times people sort of drift off and go inside to experience, you know, what's happening uh, in their lives, to experience the emotions, their thoughts, things that they're working on with their therapist. Our sessions can last from 90 minutes to two and a half hours. And the therapists are there usually to, to support them, to talk to them, to guide them through. And then, um, you know, nurses are there to make sure that everything is safe. At the end of a session, they're, they're sent home once cleared by nurse, and then they meet with the therapist within 24 hours to integrate that experience into their life. 
Hey there, I'm Raji Sohal in for Mike Smith today and Alberta has announced that it's the first province that will regulate psychedelics for therapy and that's what we're taking your calls on now at 604-280-9898. Maybe you have experience with psychedelics or you know someone who does. Maybe you're in therapy for some trauma and this is something that you would consider doing and you have questions around it. Well, our guest here to talk with us about it is Dr. Neil Barclay. He has a lot of experience in this area because he's the regional medical director for Numinous in Vancouver. They combine the practices of administering psychedelic medicine with holistic integrated psychotherapy. Neil, we really appreciate your time and that you're joining us this morning. And now you were before the break describing the setting and the, the environment of what a uh, of, of what a patient could come to expect when uh, these drugs are being administered with a therapist present. And I asked you, we didn't quite get to it, but I asked you for those people who are wondering if this is for them, what are the things that they need to consider? Yeah, great question. So a lot of the information can be found on our website, but, you know, we treat uh, mental health conditions commonly, things like depression, trauma and anxiety, addictive disorders. These would, these would be the uh, most common reasons we would, we would treat people with mental health concerns. And you know, medicines such as ketamine are, are quite safe, but there are a few exclusions, which, which you could find, you know, people with blood pressure, which hasn't been controlled, or for instance, they've suffered from psychosis before. Those would be two examples for why they wouldn't um, qualify. But all of these concerns can be worked through with our personal health navigators, who are you know, people that work in our clinics, as well as a medical visit, which would occur before anybody um, undertakes psychedelic therapy. And another question I had asked you, uh, I don't mean this humorously, but people are worried that it could have a terrible effect on their brain, a, a negative effect. What, what's your answer to that? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think that's a very valid concern. Um, these are powerful medicines and they, they create very strong effects in people. But um, on whole, when we look at it, there is a much greater potential for um, you know benefit than there is for harm. And a lot of the people that would perhaps... Um, suffer more challenging experiences or maybe not benefit would be screened out through our, um, our treating conditions, uh, uh, treating physicians rather. Um, and so by the time somebody actually makes it to the, the time when they're doing the psychedelic therapy, we're confident that these people are going to benefit. And when we, we look at people that go through our, our, our programs, they do very well. Um, and, you know, I, I think that although they confront sometimes challenging um, emotions and feelings, uh, a lot of the time, this is how they actually um, benefit and are able to gain insights into life and, and change the way that they view the world and the way they interact with themselves, others, their communities. And Neil, uh, the policy change that's happening now in Alberta, uh, part of it was done, it said, in order to help people with post-traumatic stress disorder. And some folks might be surprised to hear that it could help with that or with anxiety or depression when they are resistant to conventional treatments. Um, Does that mean when therapy alone doesn't work for them? It does. And, you know, the... um the potential for these medicines is, is, is wonderful. And although we have ketamine right now, some of these other substances like MDMA and, uh, and psilocybin are, are perhaps even more powerful. Um, the studies for MDMA in post-traumatic stress dis- disorder are remarkable. Um, if you look at one study that I, I can recall, they took people that had post-traumatic stress disorder for more than 15 years. And so these are people that, you know, maybe had been in war zones, maybe had suffered physical trauma, 
Um, and they treated them using therapy and, and MDMA, very similar to what we do with ketamine. Um, just the sessions were a lot longer, lasting six to eight hours. And what they found after putting people through, um, through three of these medicine sessions with the, the preparation, the integration that I talked about before, is that 60% of these people didn't have the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder anymore. And when you consider the, the potential to cure people from a mental health condition, which can be so damaging, like post-traumatic stress disorder, it's, it's truly remarkable. And, you know, these are people that, you know, they're, they're perhaps not working. They're perhaps have relationships that are falling apart. They're suffering on a daily basis from terrible dreams and, and re- recalling this trauma. And if you could actually cure that, imagine the kind of effect that could have on society. Now, what about addiction? Because drugs hold the potential to become addictive. And you look at uh, the province of BC already, and the addiction issues are already gripping so many people here. So so what about for the folks that say, do we really need more drugs and more readily available ones? You know, and I think that once again, it's a valid concern as well. And and many things that that we use are, are very addictive. You know, we're in the midst of an opioid crisis. Uh, where, you know, several people are dying every day in BC. And, and so we have to be very careful when we look at new medicines. But the fact is, is that the potential for addiction from these medicines like MDMA and psilocybin, mescaline, um, are, are minuscule. Um, you know, ketamine is, is a drug that's used um, on the streets. Sometimes people use it as a party drug. Uh, but when you look at these studies of people that are using it in a controlled setting under therapeutic guidance, the risk of addiction is vanishingly small. Um, you know, the, the toxicity of these drugs is, is unbelievable. It's so low. Um, psilocybin, for instance, you know, as you, you said, you commonly refer to as magic mushrooms. We don't know what the toxic dose is. Um, we estimate that, that maybe if you ate your body weight in fresh mushrooms, you, you might die from this. But, um, you know, it is um, really, these are very safe medicines. And many studies show that the potential for addiction for these is, is far, far, far lower than things such as alcohol or tobacco. Okay, we're going to take a call now. Good morning, Jody. What's your question? Hi. Um, you know, I'm 70 now, but way back when as a teenager in their early 20s, I did a lot of magic mushrooms, and I had a lot of fun. But not everybody does. Some people have well, trips, hallucinations are too much. I'm personally scared to try this therapy just because you lose control of yourself. Okay, thank you, Jody. Jody's a valid concern there. What do you have to say about that, doctor? Yeah, no, I agree. A valid concern. And, you know, it's, it's interesting, Jody. If, if you look on any weekend in Vancouver, there's, there's lots of people out there who are doing psilocybin and MDMA in, in non-controlled settings, yet, you know, we still have mental health concerns. And so there's a very different, um, it's very different to be using medicines, you know, recreationally for fun, as, as you mentioned, versus in a controlled therapeutic setting. And um, we recognize that, you know, it, it's not just about doing medicine. It's about doing the medicine in a setting where you're supported, where you're prepared, where when you experience these, you know, difficult or challenging experiences, that you understand how to integrate that into your life. And when you look at these studies, and there are many of them out there about psilocybin, you know, the ingredient in magic mushrooms, um, the, the number of people that, that have bad outcomes is vanishingly small. Um, and that just shows how important it is to do it under the right conditions. And, and that's why this, this change in Alberta is, is so great is because they've recognized that and they've said, look, the chance of, of harm is very low, but the chance of, of benefit is very high. And so let's, let's put in a framework to ensure that people are doing it in a safe environment. Well, it's something we'll definitely be watching in BC to see if there's any kind of policy change to follow what's happened in Alberta. Dr. Neil Barclay, thank you so much for being with us today. 
Oh, pleasure. Anytime. Thanks so much for having me.